The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good evening and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and this is a listener Q&A show here on Real Life Real Estate. We do typically do these once a month, generally on the last Wednesday of the month, not always, depending on guest availability, but there's always an opportunity for you to ask questions anytime you think of them at askvina at gmail.com and always a chance for you to listen to Q&A shows at our website at realliferealestate.com. Um, we have, I don't know, it's got to be well over 100, maybe approaching 200 <laughs> podcasts of old shows there on that uh, website as well as a place where you can uh, put, put in your name and email address and get notified of the weekly programs as they happen, the topics, the times, all of that sort of thing. Uh, this is a pre-recorded Q&A show, which we end up having to do from time to time due to travel schedules and whatnot. And so all of the questions have come from our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash re goddess which from time to time you'll see something there where i say hey guys i need questions and folks are generally pretty good about asking a variety of interesting questions and that's where we are drawing from today the first question that i'm coming across here on the facebook page is from wendy who says, I've read about flipping other real estate products such as liens and notes. Do you think that's a wise strategy? Or are these two products the type that investors should just hold on to until the end results? Well, Wendy, I learned a long time ago that investors are coming from a wide variety of places in their lives, resources, experience, knowledge, and with very few exceptions, I would never say that any particular strategy is just not a good one or not advisable. Now, there, there's, there's things about strategies you know, if you said, well, my strategy is I buy rentals and then I finance them for 110% of what they're worth because that way I get to take cash out to buy more rentals. I would say, well, yeah, that's not a good strategy because <laughs> leverage leverage works for you and against you. But I mean, you're, that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about like a whole idea of flipping things. And yes, properties are the typical thing we talk about flipping. But yes, there are people out there who flip tax liens, who flip mortgages and notes performing and defaulted 
There's people out there who flip apartment buildings. I mean, you know, it's it, it, flipping is flipping is just kind of a way of looking at whatever thing you're talking about, whatever asset you're talking about, not as a long-term income-producing, return-producing asset, but rather as a piece of inventory. You know, when you think about it, what do car dealers do? They flip cars. They get inventory from the dealer, and then they try and get it off the lot as fast as possible and make some quick cash and move on, right? They're flipping cars. There's nothing, strictly speaking, wrong with flipping. There are some things about it that not everybody likes, for instance. It's a job, man. You find a great tax lien note property you want to flip. You flip it. You make some money. Maybe it's maybe it's $2,000. Maybe it's $10,000. Maybe you hit it out of the ballpark. And you made $50,000 flipping that property. And where are you getting your next $50,000? You got to go through the whole process all over again. You have to go find another tax lien, another note, another property, whatever it is that you are flipping. So... The way a lot of people seem to approach this is I flip in order to gain experience in the topic. I mean, if you're going to flip a note, you got to learn how to do notes, right? You can't flip a note unless you know it's a good note and you can't know it's a good note unless you learned how to evaluate notes. My ultimate goal, though, says this imaginary person who's talking inside my head, is to have enough money, right, to have enough cash money that I can leave it somewhere where it's performing. And that tends to be in whatever asset they were flipping. If they like tax liens, they buy tax liens and hold on to them until, as you say, they get the end result. If they've been flipping houses, they buy a house and they hold on to it until they get the end result of rents and payoff and all of that sort of thing. Some of the flipping strategies that I have come across in my own self-education are less um, less likely that the average person is going to be able to pull them off than other strategies are. There is a lot of desire out in the world and therefore a lot of customers for a house that you might flip, an apartment building that you might flip, um, a note that you might flip. When you start getting into things like tax liens there's less of an appetite for them but also there's lots of people who like to invest in them and when there's people competing against you who would be normal normally folks that you would flip to that means they're they're outbidding you in these public auctions of tax liens for the most part and when you do end up with one, the group of people who knows how to buy it and then make it work for them is probably a smaller group than like a house. And then there's some things that I've seen advertised as being good things to flip that it's just like almost impossible to make your way through the process that is required to put those things under contract or close them and flip them. So do I think it's a wise strategy for you to flip? tax liens and notes I don't know because I don't know you do you understand those things do you understand how to source the inventory do you know who the dealer is for those inventory 
Do you have the money to close them? Because in the case of notes, sometimes they're flipped without actually closing. The, the contract is flipped as it often is in a wholesale deal in a house. Uh, but with something like a tax lien, you kind of have to close it first. So do you know what that process looks like? Do you have buyers that you're pretty sure want them? Do you know how to evaluate them correctly so that you know that when you raise your hand at that tax sale to bid a certain amount of money that you are in fact going to be able to sell it for more than what you just agreed to pay for it. Ideal world, you keep the stuff you like and flip the stuff you don't like. If you see a tax lien that you're like, ooh, this is on a really good house and I think it's probably going to actually pay off and it doesn't pay, if it doesn't pay off, the house is paid off, so I'm in first position and I would definitely be able to sell it at a foreclosure sale and make all my money and interest back. Keep that one, the one that you're not so sure about because it's out of town or whatever, maybe flip that one. End goal, your money works for you, right? You don't work for you, your money works for you. And that means holding on to them until the end result. But either way, whatever asset you're trying to flip, get yourself educated about it. Don't don't go to a weekend seminar where it's really just a big sales pitch for the big class and, and walk out of the weekend seminar and say, well, I know enough now. You know, understand what you're doing if you're going to be flipping. Thank you for your question, Wendy. It's question and answer week on real life real estate investing. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, and we're doing a pre-recorded Q&A week. Questions are all coming from our website at facebook.com forward slash regoddess. And gosh, we've got a lot of questions. I really appreciate the folks who responded to my request this morning to send a lot of questions because there's like 26 of them. Not, okay, there's, there's, there's 22 of them and four sarcastic comments like, just explain Pete Fortunato. And uh, I, I, we don't have enough. There's not enough shows like in the whole year to explain Pete Fortunato. I don't, I don't, I don't know where I would even start with that. I'm not sure I understand Pete Fortunato's own explanations of Pete Fortunato, but uh, do appreciate the uh, laughter there. Um, so, Question from Annette. Annette says, if you acquire a property subject to the existing loan, who do you make the payments to? The, the mortgagee or the seller? So in other words, the lender or the seller. If it's the seller, how can you assure that they stay on top of sending payments on the mortgage? If it's to the mortgagee, how do you obtain billing information and how do you proceed with questions to the mortgage company without involving the seller? Uh, so Annette, there's um, subject to seem so simple on its surface. Could that have been more alliterative? It seems so simple on its sur surface. Subject to seems. All right, now my tongue's tied in a knot. It seems like you go to the closing, you get the deed, you get the payment book, and you make payments going forward, right? But as you have thought this through, clearly you have come up with some additional questions. And I recommend that anyone who's going to try to do subject twos get a really serious in-depth course on that topic. It's, 
it's so easy to mess these up in ways that uh, impact both you and your seller and potentially somebody like a tenant buyer who might be living in the property in bad ways that are hard to untangle if you didn't know what they could have been at the beginning and take care of them at the beginning. And there's there's subject to courses out there that go into a lot of depth about things like how do you calculate whether the payment you're taking over is is too much? It's possible that the payment might be such that even if you can rent the property for a couple of hundred dollars a month more, it's not a good deal because the couple hundred dollars a month more does not cover the payment plus the maintenance turnovers, repairs, utilities that you're going to get stuck with from time to time, all of that sort of thing. Your question about to whom do you make the payments, the answer needs to be either you make them directly to the lender, or if the seller says, well, how do I know you made it to the lender? And they don't, they don't understand that they can call the lender anytime and see if the payments are up to date, or they can look at their online portal with their bank and see if the payments are made. The, you could send the check to the seller, but it would still need to be made out to the lender. Like you don't want to send the payment made out to the seller for the exact reason that you were worried about, which is what if they cash the check and they don't make the payment to the lender? The lender's not going not gonna to accept your excuse about, look, you can't foreclose on me because I made all the payments to your borrower. They, they, the contract with the borrower didn't say that you were going to make it with the, to the borrower. It said that the payments were going to get to the bank in some way or another, right? So typically... I would just make them straight to the bank. And and with all the with everything being online now, the seller if they ever get concerned or anything could just go look at the their own mortgage balance and payments on their bank's website and see that they're being made up to date. So your question about if it's to the lender, how do you get the billing information and proceed with questions to the mortgage company without involving the seller? This is why I say it's easy to mess these up in ways that come back to haunt you later because really you're kind of in a in a long-term long-distance relationship with the seller for as long as this loan goes on. You do not want to lose track of your seller in case you ever need them to get on the phone with you with a bank or insurance company or somebody like that to just to confirm that you're allowed to talk to the appropriate service provider. So don't don't lose track of them. But the billing information is simple. Uh, either the seller is receiving invoices and whatnot through email or they are receiving them through the mail or if they have one of these really small banks, they have a coupon book. If it's coming in the mail, you have the seller fill out a change of address form only for that bank for that particular payment uh, at the closing and you send it to the bank afterwards and the bank gets this notice that says Sammy the seller is now at this address, which is your address, and they send this stuff to you from then on out. If it's an online portal, it's a little bit more complicated because the seller kind of needs to provide you with the access information for that online portal. And if he does all of his banking there, he might not want to do that. So you're going to have to just request that the bank start sending stuff Again, through an, a, a form with the bank or an address form. Um, also, just as a practical matter, 
when you get that change of address form at the closing, make a copy of it and send the copy because I don't know how many times I've sent change of address forms to the bank and they have not actually changed the address. They keep selling, sending the stuff straight to the seller. And that's super important because the payment changes over time. Taxes will go up, insurance, insurance will go down. They will have miscalculated the escrow and they need to raise it by 100 bucks a month this year. And, and if you miss that, you're going to just keep sending the same check in. And pretty soon the payment's not going to be in arrears, but it's going to be behind because you've been sending the wrong size check. You also at the closing should have a power of attorney, a durable power of attorney signed by the seller. It's a limited power of attorney. It only says that the bank, the insurance company, the utility company, whoever you think you might need to talk to has the seller's permission to talk to you. In other words, it's not like a, uh, it's not like an authorization release information. It's like a permanent, I can speak to these people on the seller's behalf, power of attorney, which will need to be notarized. So you, you have just scraped the top here of all the things that I could tell you about how to avoid future problems in a subject two before they happen in the first place. But those are really good questions, and I'm really glad you are thinking through this before you dive in, because more often I get asked to untangle a situation that somebody's got themselves into that it's like super hard to untangle. It would not have been hard to keep it from getting tangled up in the first place. Okay, question from Prentice. He says, does anyone screen the gurus when they come to town? <laughs> So, so as, as folks who've been pursuing, um, real estate education know, there are, um, a set of kind of well-known national quote gurus who you often recognize their faces because they've been on TV on some related type program at some point or another. And then there's a gigantic set of um, less well-known, because they've never been on TV, uh, folks who will come through town and they've got education for sale, right? Everything from a cheap little course on something very limited to, to $50,000, $60,000, $70,000 um, complete packages of education at all. And... Sometimes you find out they're coming through town because you got an email or a postcard. Somebody bought your name off a list of people interested in real estate education. It just comes out of the blue. You have the free VIP pass to this thing that normally costs $127. No, it doesn't. It's no one pays to get into those things. And then you will also see them at your local real estate association. Uh, and depending on which real estate association that is, it could be every month. It could be three or four times a year like it is with Cincinnati RIA. Um, it could be twice a year. And the question of, does anybody screen these? The reason I brought up the difference between the folks who just send you an invitation and, you know, come to a hotel room when that's a thing. And some, somebody that you might see at a real estate investors association meeting is nobody, nobody screens and there is no national like checklist of what it requires to be a guru and, no, you know, national better business bureau for that sort of thing. So if you're showing up at a hotel room somewhere, I promise you there has been no way in which that person has been screened. 
No, no one has looked and said, does this person really do the business they say they're doing? Do they have good business practices? Do they have good quality courses? If you choose to invest in the course, is it a good course? No, nobody, nobody checks. At a real estate association that's doing its job, somebody is checking. Somebody is checking their reputation. Do they have good back-end practices with other groups, you know, they had problems before where people have asked for refunds within the refund period and the the guru has refused to issue them. Have they had have they had complaints in other groups where they something was promised? You know, you, you get you get my cell phone number and it turned out not to be their cell phone number. It turned out to be a RIA groups talk to each other. And that is the minimum screening that should be going on in RIA associations. I think one that's really doing its job is not just gonna hear, hey, this person came and sold a lot at our group, they're going to dig in further than that and say, did were there any returns? Were there any complaints? Were there any problems with them as a, did they, did they show up on time? Are there any problems with them as a presenter? And one that's really, really doing its job is going to take a serious look at the product that's being sold. And I will say that that, that doesn't happen a lot because a lot of RIA groups are run by volunteers or by part-time uh, group owners, and they feel like they don't have time to go through an entire course and see if the contracts look like they might potentially be legal or illegal in your state, or whether they felt like when they got to the end they could have done the thing based on the course. Um, it takes a really extraordinary RIA group to actually do that, but some somebody somewhere should be screening the gurus when they come into town, if they are in a RIA group. And I always tell people, if you're going to invest in real estate education, the internet is a frightening place to make that investment. Because, like, I don't even know if the picture of the guy on the screen is even the guy who's teaching the class. I, he, could, he could have made up his entire bio and his whole success history. I don't know anything about him. Getting it from... These random people who come through town is slightly less dangerous because at least you get a f maybe a feel for them. Although usually the people they send are salespeople, not you know, they're not actually the people delivering the education. The safest place is within your RIA group, and I don't just mean because the speakers are vetted. I mean because you can ask other people in the group if they have experience with that speaker, if they've been through the program, if it was good, and get that kind of direct recommendation. So great question, Prentice. Appreciate it. We'll be back again right after this quick break. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Um, all the questions that I'm answering today came from our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash re goddess this is a pre-recorded program if you come up with any questions while you're listening to it you can't call us but you could send it via email to askvina at gmail.com and we'll cover it in a future q a show question from lawrence if an owner died without a will how do you find out all the errors on title to a house in order to sign over the property and any wisdom about dealing with difficult holdouts. Okay, so this is probably the most misunderstood part of buying probate properties right here. And it's misunderstood mostly by the heirs themselves. 
but also by real estate investors who are dealing with those heirs. Unless the property has already passed on to the heirs, in other words, it is already in their names, they cannot sell it. It doesn't matter that grandma always said she wanted Joe Bob to have the property. It doesn't matter that everybody else in the family knew and agreed that Joe Bob was going to get the property. If grandma didn't either sign that property over to her to him before she died or have a survivorship deed with him that said, when I die, you get the house, just go down to the courthouse and present the death certificate and they'll make sure it gets into your name. Or she didn't have a will that has been probated and an executor appointed and the executor's job is to make grandma's wishes come true, which is that Joe Bob gets the property. Joe Bob cannot sell that property. I get calls from Joe Bob every week. My aunt died. She left me her property. I want to sell it. Okay. So how long ago did she pass away? Two days ago. Okay. Uh, did she have a deed that said that you automatically got the property? Well, no, she just wanted me to have it. Did she have a will? No, but everybody in my family knows she wanted me to have it. And she didn't sign it over to you before she passed away. No, I didn't. Okay, so Joe Bob, here's the deal. <laughs> you don't have a will. You're going to have to go to the court and have them appointed an appointed administrator. And hopefully that will be you. But the administrator in the court's job is to find out who all of Auntie Mame's heirs were. And then they are going to have to agree that you, in fact, should be the sole owner of the property. And then they will eventually, after six months, get the deed over to you and then you can sell it. Well, you don't understand. She wanted me to have it. No, I completely understand. And I can even help you with the process of getting that probate started. But right now, you are not the owner of this property. Do you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, 10 of them. Okay, so there's going to be 10 of you. There's going to be nine other people that agree to sign whatever interests that they had in the estate, which since there was no will, you know, they may share the interest between all of them over to you. So it depends. It depends on the... You said in the question, Lawrence, that the owner died without a will. But the question is, has probate been opened anyway? Because it needs to be opened anyway. Having Finding all of the heirs and having them sign over the property, the question would be, sign it over to whom? They can't sign it to you because they don't own it. They could, I guess, kind of quit claim it to each other. And then one of them could open probate and sell it to you. But the... the probate has to be open now in some states there is a um there's like a faster cheaper way of doing a probate here in ohio it's called a motion for relief from administration where an attorney can go to the court and say look there was only this one asset all of the heirs are in agreement about where it goes so we just like to have relief from administration and just have the court decide that it's all going to joe bob and if all of the heirs will sign off and say, that's what we agree on, that takes like six to eight weeks here in Ohio instead of six months. And it still costs a little bit of money, like maybe 800 as opposed to a couple of thousand dollars. 
and that's something you should look into in your state, which I believe is California, and see if there's a similar process there. Now, any wisdom with dealing with difficult holdouts, that's a whole different problem because when you have estates that are shared amongst a large number of people, and by large I mean like four or more, it is very often the case that you get one of those people who for whatever emotional or control reason will not agree to sign th- sign off on things. You know, I, I, recent cases I've run across, the all of the owners in Cincinnati wanted to sell the property at the price that I proposed. The one in Alaska, where property values are roughly, I don't know, three times what they are in Cincinnati, didn't think it was enough money and would not sign off on the sale. Now, this was a this was a property that had already gone through probate and the four heirs already owned it. All four of their names were on the title and this one would not sign off on it and therefore we couldn't get the title. They actually did after a year of holding out and trying to sell it at the price that they thought was more fair, sign off on it. Um, another situation, uh, three heirs, one of whom had been living rent-free in the house for three years. Guess which one didn't want to sign off on the title? And the reason that she gave was, uh, we shouldn't let go of this house because it's mom's house and you know I'm emotionally attached to it. But let's face it, the real reason was if the house got sold, she wouldn't have her rent-free living situation anymore. Another case I ran across, only two heirs, one of whom legitimately was entirely emotionally attached to the house. They had held this house for nine years after mom and dad died. Nine years, the local sibling had been going in every week, mowing the lawn, cleaning it up, keeping it dust-free. It was like a museum, like everything was exactly where it had been when mom died. The other heir who lived out of town and didn't have any of those responsibilities was splitting the tax bill, the insurance bill, but absolutely would not agree to sell the property because she just could not let it go. So yes, that does happen in probate. That is one of the challenges of probate. And oftentimes there's nothing you can do. Like the person just needs to, either the person needs to get around to it or the heirs who do want to sell need to put pressure on them. And sometimes that works, but many times these deals are just long-term deals. You, You can't make the deal right now, so you call the heir that you've been talking to back every month or six weeks and just say, so how's it going with, uh, Mary Sue, is she making any noises about being ready to sell yet? By the way, I drove by there the other day and I noticed a tree fell on the roof. So, yeah, probate does, like everything else, present its own set of challenges. Thank you for your question, Lawrence. We'll be back right after this break with more Q&A Day. Welcome back to Q&A Day on Real Life Real Estate Investing. Taking all the questions today off of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash regoddess. A question from Tina. Do you use the cost to sell approach when making your offers or do you just make the offer without all of that discussion and presentation? If you do use it, is it always in person or do you do it via email and on the phone? Any other methods that you have found work well? So Tina, I'm going to, you know, again, the cost to sell approach is I'm I'm translating what you mean by that, because that is one of those pieces of jargon that folks in different parts of the country would say it in different ways. I think what you're talking about 
is this idea that when making an offer to a seller, you outline, this is why my offer has to be what it is. And yes, it looks, I know, I know that your neighbor sold for 150, but your neighbor also didn't have a house that needed $25,000 in work. And uh, it looks like with my $100,000 offer that I'm making 50,000, but realistically with the $25,000 in repair costs, and then I'll pay a realtor to sell it. So that'll be another $9,000. And then there will be a cost to selling it. And then there will be, uh, I'll have to make payments for the four months that I'm fixing it up. And as you can see, this is a fair offer because I'm not making that much money down at the end. That's what you're talking about, right, Tina? That is not an approach that I use because frankly, I do not believe that sellers care what I'm getting out of the deal. I believe that they care what they are getting out of the deal. The price sort of works for them or it doesn't. And me explaining all the intricacies of how my operation might be working is not relevant to the benefits to them. I like to talk about what's in it for them, not what's in it or not in it for me. Now, this actually brings up an incredibly important concept, which is you just heard me say, I don't use it. I don't find it valuable. I don't think sellers find it valuable. I have a really close colleague that uses it every time. In fact, he has a whole piece of software that he, he it works out for him what what all the numbers should be so that he can sit down with the seller and show them a spreadsheet and explain this exactly to them. And he swears up and down that it is what makes most of his deals for him. How can both of those things be true? How can how can Venus say it's not it's not necessary, it's not valuable, and Mike say no, this is how I get all of my deals. If we assume that we are both right, how can both of those things be true? I've never actually seen him make an offer presentation, but I'm guessing that he is very comfortable with that particular presentation. He does believe it's a benefit to the seller for, for this to happen, and therefore it comes across to the seller as being a benefit to the seller. That he may, maybe Maybe the benefit they see is he's taking all this time with them or he's really educating them or explaining something to them. I, I don't know, but both of those things can be true simultaneously. You know, Mike happens to be a very kind of engineering oriented guy, and I'm guessing that numbers appeal to him a lot. And, and it may be that sellers that he would lose because they're not numbers oriented right that, not right like that are the sellers I would get because I don't take that approach and vice versa. But you will often hear people that you that you trust and believe are experienced and know what they're talking about say things that seem like opposites. They seem like one of these two things has to be true. It cannot possibly be both. And yet it is often both. And one of the most valuable things that you can do in your own self-education is talk to a lot of people. And when you run across something like this, say, I had heard that this was a really good thing for these reasons, and now you're telling me it's not. What are your reasons? And then just sort of mull on that, compare and contrast. You know, is it is it that this is an engineering approach, and hey, I happen to be an engineer, so this might actually really work well for me. 
people aren't always able to articulate why they think a different approach doesn't work well and why they think theirs does work so well. All they know is their experience, right? So your job is to try kind of meld their experience together and see what you come out with in terms of what might work best for you. Question from Brad. I hear a lot about contacting pre-foreclosure properties. Other than going to the courthouse, how do you find these people before they are in foreclosure? So, Brad, it's possible that you are hearing pre-foreclosure and foreclosure in a different way than the way in which people are talking about it technically would discuss. Because, I mean, really, you're in pre-foreclosure all the time. I'm in pre-foreclosure right now because no foreclosure has happened to me. And and, I also haven't made any late payments, so maybe I'm in pre-pre-foreclosure Usually when when people talk about pre-foreclosure, they're talking about the time frame between the time that whatever suit is necessary in your state to begin the foreclosure process, whatever filing has been filed, and the time that the auction actually happens. So the auction would be foreclosure, and that's a obviously a short-term thing where there's six weeks notice in the paper and then there's an actual auction. Pre-foreclosure starts, depending on where you live, sometime between 40 days and maybe as much as nine months before that with the initial filing, which might be a list pendants, it might be a change of trustee request, it might be a foreclosure suit being filed. Once they are filed, they are public record. Yes, you can go to the courthouse or you can get online with the courthouse or you can buy lists from people who have compiled those things for you. I feel like you might be asking about the pre-pre-foreclosure stage, like before the for, before any suit is filed, It at which point it is not a pre-foreclosure. It's really more of a loan default because people can get behind. It's common for people to get behind in their payments three months or more before the, the even the pre-foreclosure stage starts. And in terms of getting a hold of those people, there is such a thing for sale as a 30, 60, 90 day late list, which is a list that I assume is compiled from credit bureau information. And what it tells you is the these people did not make a payment in the last 30 days. Then the next list is these haven't made it in the last 60. And this one is haven't made it in the last 90. And some of those are going to turn out to be on the actual pre-foreclosure list because like day 89, maybe the bank goes ahead and files foreclosure. But those are, I mean, if you Google 30, 60, 90 day late lists, you can buy them all over the place. They're not cheap. And the fact that somebody's 30 days behind in their payment, especially right now, isn't necessarily telling about anything because, you know, once you get 90 days behind, the chances you will ever catch up are like, nine to one, but at 30 days, it's it's much higher. So I think that's the list you're actually looking for, Brad. All right. Thank you guys for all of your questions. I really, really, really appreciate it. It's always hard to do these Q&A shows, especially when there are no questions. And we got a plethora of them today. And I really do appreciate y'all taking the time out of your day to post those on facebook.com slash re goddess and um we'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing until then 
happy investing.